0: Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and a confession adopted by this Christian church, and we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 17, uh, as it works as the catechism works its way through the Apostles' Creed. Lord's Day 17 deals with the issue of Christ's resurrection. The question that the catechism asks there is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, By his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we have the opportunity to do some thinking together about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, what the church has always confessed. uh, On the third day, he arose from the dead. And then, of course, towards the end, uh, tied to this confession is we believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, the big question I want to ask this afternoon is, why does Jesus' resurrection matter? Why is his resurrection important, no, not important, essential for our salvation? Now, perhaps to some of us, that, that might sound like a question that doesn't need to be asked. It's uh, easy enough to answer, but take a moment and, and answer it then. Uh, think about it yourself. Why, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Otherwise, as Paul says, our faith would be futile. Why is his resurrection so important? Uh, You might think about it this way, if you were asked to summarize the gospel message in in Twitter-sized form, how would you summarize the gospel? And probably many of us would say something like, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, to take away God's wrath, something to that extent. And of course, that is true. But if you were to ask, uh, if you were to ask, then why does Jesus' resurrection Why is that essential for our faith? We might struggle to to answer that question. Here's the clincher. When the apostles and the early Christians spoke of the gospel, when they summarized the gospel, they actually spoke of the resurrection first, or uh, at least as often, if not more often, than they spoke of Christ's death. Think about these words from 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has... How might you expect him to fill in the blank? According to God's great mercy, we, we might say if we to defil- finish that sentence, he has, he has sent Christ to die for our sins, which of course is true. But Peter says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Uh, You see it elsewhere as well. Romans uh, chapter 1, the very uh, first words of the letter to the Romans. Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he then proceeds to describe. uh, He says, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, when, the, when the apostles spoke of the gospel, they went immediately to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you see this in all of the early sermons that Peter preached in Acts, uh, which are some of the first sermons that were ever preached in the Christian community, in the Christian church. Peter, uh, Peter, every time, speaks of the resurrection as the, the central confession, the, 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 uh, the moment in which we, uh, we declare to the world, this is the Son of God. You think about what Paul says as well in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So for the apostles in the early church, the resurrection was seen to them as essential to their faith. With that in mind then, I want to ask the question, why? Why is the resurrection essential to the Christian faith? What follows from it? Why does our faith rest upon it? I want to look at five reasons given in Scripture for why the resurrection is essential for our faith Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Listen again to what Paul says in in Romans 1, verses 1 to 4, uh, particularly verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, his resurrection was God's declaration to the world, this is my Son, this is why it was so important for the apostles when they preached the gospel, because it, it, it was the resurrection that really had turned their lives upside down. It was the resurrection that was the turning point, where they went from despairing, scattered disciples uh, who, who were dejected, deluded even, wondering why did, why did Christ come only to die? And, and they didn't know what would come next. They went from Disappointed disciples to victorious, rejoicing apostles. What happened in between it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection that that utterly shattered their world. When Thomas saw the risen Lord Jesus, what did he declare? He said, my Lord and my God. See, the resurrection is what led him to that confession of faith. Now, it is true, other people have risen from the dead before Jesus, uh, there are resuscitation accounts elsewhere in Scripture. The prophet Elisha raised a, a young boy from the dead. Uh, the Lord Jesus, earlier in his ministry, raised Lazarus from the dead. But, but these, are, these cases are, at best, they are temporary resuscitations. Death is delayed, but not overcome. They were raised, yet in order only to die again. In this sense, the resurrection is, uh, of Jesus is absolutely unique. Uh, and there's really several things about Jesus' resurrection that makes it utterly unique. For one thing, Jesus is the only one who said that he was going to die and then rise again on the third day. Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do, and then he did it. Uh, that's, that's very significant. Lazarus didn't do that. Elisha, or, or the young boy who died, didn't do that. They weren't raised by their own power. They were raised by the power of God through his prophets. Uh, In addition to this, think about the events of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was buried in a tomb, uh, and a heavy stone was placed in front of that tomb. Uh, It was sealed off, and guards were even placed around the entrance of the tomb. And yet Jesus not only rose from death, But an angel of God removed the stones in the sight of the guards. It's a very unique resurrection account, a display of God's power unlike anything that has ever been seen before. Uh, And then finally, as I mentioned, Jesus died, unlike Lazarus, unlike the boy that Elisha raised, Jesus died never, or sorry, Jesus rose never to die again, Jesus rose glorified. He rose as one who had not just delayed death, but had overcome it, had come out the other side. Uh, That makes Jesus' resurrection utterly unique. Uh, And so, here's our first point then. Jesus' resurrection is God's declaration. Something unique is going on here, and by this declaration, he shows to the world, this is my son. Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of God. Now, there were many other times God had affirmed this, of course. There was Jesus' baptism, if you recall. Uh, Matthew 3 tells, tells these, this story, uh, as does Mark chapter 1. Jesus' baptism, in which God declared, this is my son. Uh, again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus' disciples are up there with him on the mountain. Uh, and, and God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, God demonstrated his, his favor for Jesus in, in many other ways as well. Uh, when, when Jesus died and the, and the rocks split open, uh, the centurion who was standing nearby saw that and also confessed, surely this was the Son of God. So the resurrection is not God's first time to, to declare in which he declares that Jesus is, is his Son, but it is the most powerful uh, vindication of, of this claim this is as i mentioned this is what turned those those terrified uh, cowering disciples into bold and courageous apostles who every one of them ultimately gave their lives for for the gospel that's why peter's uh, inaugural sermon in acts chapter 2 was all about the resurrection uh, this is what had made him bold uh, when he would when seen the resurrection of the Lord uh, and then, of course, was filled with his spirit. That's why Peter says in Acts 2, uh, verse 31, "...David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." And a few verses later, uh, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Why should we know that? Because God raised him from the dead. So the resurrection was central to the apostles because it was the proof, the irrefutable evidence from God himself that they had seen with their own eyes That Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the the first point then. Secondly, the resurrection brings an end to the curse of death. The resurrection brings an end to the curse of death for those who belong to Jesus. Now to understand this, I need to say something about Jesus' death. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me, uh, try and think through this with me, It's something that might not be obvious. I think part of the reason that many Christians struggle to explain why Jesus needed to rise from the dead is because they don't quite understand what happened when Jesus died. See, we understand that Christ died as our substitute, Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Uh, Isaiah 53, many other places in scripture clearly teach Jesus died as our substitute. However, when we think of Christ as our substitute, the way that Christians have historically understood this is not as just a simple exchange, him in my place and I in his. It's not just a simple exchange. Uh, this, this is why many people today struggle with the idea even of the atonement and question uh, whether it's even just that God would punish another person in our place. Is that, is that truly just? And, and it's a fair question. When the Bible speaks of Christ's death in our place, it is not as, uh, in the terms of a simple substitution, a simple exchange, but what we might call instead a, a representational substitution. Uh, in other words, Christ died in our place, but as our lawful representative, as our covenant head to whom we belong and who is therefore able to stand in our place with the result, here's the, here's the key difference, with the result that as far as God is concerned, we died there with him. It's not he died there in our place and we didn't die. It's we died there with him. Now just as you see this sort of this sort of substitution even in in our human legal terms, a father has the right to stand in the place of his child. Uh, a father can take a punishment in the place of his child, at least in, in some uh, circumstances. Uh, or uh, an officer can stand in the place of his men. So, so Christ then stood in our place, and in God's eyes, it is as if we were standing there with him. This is why when the scriptures speak of Christ's death, Uh, we read that we died as well there with him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. We were there on the cross with him as far as God is concerned because our covenant head, our representative, our father, you might, you might say, in, that, in this sense that Jesus uh, stands uh, over us as a father uh, in place of his children. Uh, he, he has died for us uh, in that way. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, uh, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're united to him. We're ca- counted together with Christ in his death. And We, we read this as well this, this afternoon from Romans chapter 6, uh, where Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, again, verse 5, We've been united with him in a death like his. And again, verse 8, we have died with Christ. See, his death is our death. When he died, we died. If we understand that, then it might be much easier for us to understand why the resurrection is necessary for our salvation. Because if we, united to Christ, died with him uh, in his, uh, on his cross, under the curse, we died to, to fulfill the curse uh, of the law, then without the resurrection, that's where we would still be. That's where we'd still be, under the curse, suffering eternal death. This is why, Christ, or this is why Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. You're still under the curse. Uh, you've died, so God's wrath is satisfied, but you're going to be there for the rest of eternity. See, this is is the difference with this uh, simple substitution. If all that had happened was an innocent man took the the place of uh, sinners, so our guilt goes on him and his righteousness on us, you wouldn't need a resurrection. Uh, He would spend the rest of eternity in hell, and we would spend the rest of eternity in God's presence in heaven. But this is not how the scriptures speak of Christ's death. Rather, we are united to him, uh, as the scriptures teach that we are, uh, and therefore we also must rise with him. If he hadn't risen, we wouldn't be able to be reconciled to God. To put it simply then, as the scripture teaches, when Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose with him. It's by rising from the dead that Christ brought an end to the curse of death uh, for himself and for all those who belong to him. You see this as well from Peter, uh, again in his inaugural sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, So Christ's resurrection was the moment when the power of death over him and over us was broken, both for him and for us. That's why uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which we just read, ends with, with that, uh, that hymn, uh, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's in his victory over death that we are also victorious. Uh, So then, uh, understand this, the work of Christ, the work that Christ came to do was not finished in his death on the cross. There his suffering was finished, but it was in his resurrection that our salvation was made complete. So, reason number one, why is the resurrection necessary? Because in the resurrection, God vindicated Jesus as, as his son. Reason number two, in the resurrection, the, the power of sin, the curse of death, was brought to an end. Reason number three, related to what we've just seen, in Christ, because we are united to Christ, counted with Christ, we too die to sin and rise to new life. Uh, in Christ, we die to sin and rise to new life. This is such a huge theme in the New Testament. L- let me present it by asking, asking it as a question. Why does it matter, Christian? Why does it matter how you live since your sins are forgiven anyways? Because Christ has already died for them. Why does it matter how you live? Now, there, there are different ways you can answer that question, and some of them are legitimate answers. So sometimes Christians will, will say, well, because true faith, saving faith, is shown in, in, uh, in its fruits. If you don't live a holy life, that would suggest that your faith is also insincere. That's certainly true. It's a reason Scripture also gives. It's the point the Apostle James makes in James chapter 2, that faith without works is, is dead. Related to this, too, some Christians will say, well, why should we live a holy life? Because that's how we show our gratitude to God. This is also true, and this is, this is the big idea that's presented in, in the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, even in its structure, which is divided into guilt, grace, and gratitude. But there's more that, that needs to be said. When the Apostle Paul deals with this question why should we live a life of holiness? Uh, why should we do good works, Uh, or as he puts it, why not sin so that grace might abound? Uh, Same question, just the other side of of the coin. Paul says this, uh, you read it in Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Follow the logic here. Don't, don't, let this just, don't let your eyes gloss over and this just go over your head. It, it, it is a hard concept for us to understand, but it's, it's central to the New Testament and to answering the question, why do Christians live different lives? Listen to Paul's logic then. Why should we, as those who have been redeemed, why should we turn from a life of sin to walk in newness of life Paul does not immediately speak of obedience as a mark of true faith. Uh, He doesn't immediately speak of the the importance of gratitude. Uh, But instead, he says, we turn from sin to a new life because that's what it means to be united to Christ. That's what it means to be united to Christ. We died to sin with Christ, and we rise to new life, to holiness with Christ. He goes on to say, verse 5, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See the connection there with Christ's death? Uh, when, When he died, our enslavement to sin was brought to an end. For he says, One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And therefore, uh, jumping ahead to verse 12, therefore let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do you follow the logic here? When Christ died, he died to put an end to sin. That's what Christ died for right? That's what Christ came to the world to do. Uh, He came uh, to give his life to bring an end to sin. Uh, So, so much did God hate sin that he was willing to send his son Christ, Jesus Christ, to die to bring sin to an end. It was God's hatred for sin and his love, of course, for you and his desire to rescue you from that sin that compelled the Lord Jesus to, to the cross. Now, you are united with him in that death, which means that you, by his spirit, share in that same hatred and grief for sin. If Christ died to put an end to sin and you died with him, you share in his hatred for sin. You too Regard sin as so grievous uh, that Christ had to die for it, and so it should be your utmost desire, if indeed you are with Christ, it should be your utmost desire to see sin brought to an end in your life. Uh, therefore, that Paul concludes, therefore it makes no sense for you to go on living in sin if with Christ you died to it. Uh, then Paul applies the exact same logic to Christ's resurrection. Having died to put an end to sin, Christ rose to begin a new life. Uh, What kind of life? A life of peace and fellowship restored to God. Now again, you, you are united with Christ in his death to sin, Uh, and so you are united with him in his resurrection, to a new life. What kind of new life? A life of peace and restoration and fellowship with God. That's what Christ came for. Uh, Therefore, Paul concludes, therefore, that is how we who belong to Christ ought to live. That's why the catechism speaks of of regeneration, uh, of, of repentance and conversion as the the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of, of the new, the resurrection of a new nature. I want, to just, I want to point out just a couple of other places. There are many more in the New Testament, but just a couple of other places where, where you see this same theme uh, coming out. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 6, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, you see how, how big a theme this was for, for the early Christians? We are with Christ in his resurrection. That's why we, we live new and changed lives. Uh, one more, Colossians 2, verse 12. Uh, Paul says, You've been buried with him in baptism, in, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He goes on to say, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If then you have been raised with Christ, this is 3 verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Again, you are with Christ in a new life. Uh, You've died with Christ. Praise be to God. The old you, the person that that you would be apart from from God's grace. That old man, that old woman has died. Uh, You are to consider him, consider her dead. Uh, Even though, I I know it's it's still kicking around. It's not not quite gone limp. Uh, It it still rears its ugly head uh, from time to time in our our life. Uh, But you are to count the old person as dead. Uh, And just as you died with Christ, so you also rose with Christ to a new life. Understand this then, The the death and resurrection of Christ uh, is is not just essential to our salvation. It's essential to our life. Uh, The whole of life is union with Christ. That's how we're saved, and that's how we also live. Reason number four, we're almost done here. Reason number four why the, the resurrection is absolutely essential. Because it is the living Christ who sends his spirit, who builds his church, who calls people to repentance, leading to salvation. Um, the book of Acts, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of, uh, with the New Testament, you'll know that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, and they're, they're companion volumes. They belong together. The book of Acts begins with these words. Uh, uh, Luke addresses Theophilus and he says, In my former book, referring to the Gospel of Luke, in, more, in my former book I, I described all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach, which means, by implication, what I'm about to set before you is what Jesus continued to to do and to teach uh, through his church. The living Christ builds his church uh, and builds his kingdom through his word and spirit. See, if all that Christ had done was die for our sins to pay the penalty that our sins deserve— Uh, Obviously, that in itself is a tremendous accomplishment, but it would do us no good if God did not, if Christ did not send forth his Spirit uh, to bring us to repentance and faith in him. Uh, Peter says it this way, uh, going back again to his inaugural sermon in Acts 2. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, it's the living Christ, He has poured out this, the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. To put it simply, Christ died and rose in order to reign. Christ rose from the dead in order to reign over earth. He died to purchase the nation's for himself. And he rose in order to conquer the very dominion that is now rightfully his. Uh, And he does this by his word and spirit through his church. It's what he said to the disciples right before his ascension into heaven. Uh, In Matthew 28, uh, well-known words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, When? Why? Why? After his death and resurrection, because of his death and resurrection, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the living Christ who is with us, and it is the living Christ who ultimately builds his church what uh, jesus said to to peter in matthew 16 on this rock i will build my church well that's that's what the living christ does uh so if christ were not with his church uh, if if christ were still dead uh, and in the grave he his church could not grow Uh, then not even his disciples would have become uh, believers in the fullest sense of the word, uh, because they had not yet received his spirit, Uh, and much less the billions of Christians who who have believed in him since over the last 2,000 years, uh, and and even now around the church today. Uh, This is Christ's project. Uh, The Christian church is Christ's uh, work. It is his project. It's a living Christ who builds his church? It's the living Christ who sits at the right hand uh, of the Father, who reigns over heaven and earth. It's the living Christ who sends His Spirit into our hearts uh, to create faith, to lead us to faith, uh, to justify us, and and so to share in His righteousness, which He obtained for us by His death. And then finally, we'll close on this reason number five: Christ's resurrection is is uh, is the first fruits and the guarantee. Of our final bodily resurrection. This is really what it all culminates in. Uh, This is what our salvation is headed towards the end of death, not just for our souls, but for our bodies, our bodily resurrection. It's amazing, too, that uh, this is so often overlooked by, by contemporary Christians. And not just contemporary Christians, this has often been uh, overlooked in the history of the Christian church, uh, where we, we regard the resurrection of the body as, as almost an afterthought uh, in, in our faith. Uh, so many Christians think of uh, the Christian faith as, as all about avoiding hell and getting into heaven. As if getting into heaven were the final goal uh, and our final hope. But it, but it isn't. The hope of the apostles and the hope that Jesus himself teaches us to look forward to is the final hope, the resurrection of our bodies. See, in this regard, even now, not everything is perfect in heaven. There's no question it's better than life on earth. Paul himself says it, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's gain when we leave this earth and go to be with the Lord. But it is not yet perfect. Uh, It's perfect in the sense that that we are free from sin. Uh, There is no moral imperfection there in the presence of God. And and it is undeniably, of course, a blessed, glorious reality. There's nothing better than to be in the presence of God, to see his glory and to rejoice in him. Uh, But don't forget, in Revelation 6... You find the saints crying out from under the altar, waiting to see God's justice uh, on those who persecute the church. And not only, not only then do they cry out to God in hope of, of God's final uh, judgment, not only do they cry out for that, but they also long for the day when their, uh, their souls will be reunited with their bodies. See, we're not Buddhists who think that that the goal of life is to escape from the body, uh, as if this body is a prison. No, God created us in our bodies, and and Genesis one uh, tells us it was all very good. It's good for us to be united with our our bodies, and we know this. We we feel this uh, even naturally when our loved ones die. Uh, there's a there's a A deep inclination to want to hold on to to their bodies because that's part of who they they are we are body and soul so when we also lay our loved ones down in the dirt it's true that that as we often say they go to be in a better place that that is true again paul says it to live is christ to die is gain but that's not our final hope when we lay our bodies down we're not giving them up uh, for good we're not saying goodbye to them forever. We lay our bodies down now because we know that Christ is going to raise them up again in glory uh, as perfect bodies free from sin and glorious bodies, indeed glorious beyond our ability even to, to fathom. Uh, the, the apostles suffered, in fact, so much for this belief, the, the resurrection of the body uh, it, it was such an important doctrine to them, uh, and it was so countercultural in in their day. Uh, again, we can see it in First Corinthians fifteen. There were groups of Christians even uh, who were just supposed to think that the the resurrection of the body is not actually going to happen. Uh, they couldn't swallow the idea that our bodies are something we're supposed to hold on to, uh, and that are, and are even something that that are are going to rise from the dead. Uh, and yet, this is, this is what the apostles had seen with their own eyes, the resurrection of Christ in his body. Uh, they had touched his body, they had eaten with him, and they recognized uh, that if Christ rose in his body, then so we too shall rise in our bodies. Uh, the Catechism says that Christ's resurrection then is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Uh, that's based on what Paul says in verse 20, uh, that Christ is the first fruits of, of our glorious resurrection. Uh, the first fruits, if you're familiar with, uh, with the term in, in, in farming, uh, the first fruits are the beginning of the harvest, and they give a, an indication those first fruits that come from the field or from the orchard, whatever it is, the the first fruits give you an indication of what the rest of the harvest is going to look like well so it is with Christ's resurrection as he rose in his physical body so we know this is what our resurrection will will be like uh, and and our bodies will be glorious, glorious beyond imagination. It's a beautiful metaphor that, that Paul uses at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where he compares uh, the, the body that is, that is sown in the dirt to the seed and the body that is raised from the dirt to the full-grown plant. Uh, he says, verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So in one sense, the body that comes up is the same body that was planted in the dirt. Uh, When we bury our loved ones, uh, it is that body that will, will rise, just like a kernel of wheat is the same in essence, in substance, as, as the plant that grows uh, up out of it. And yet, of course, in another sense, if we keep that metaphor in mind, the, the body that is to be raised is glorious beyond imagination, beyond, uh, is so much more glorious than the seed that was put into the dirt in the first place. That seed has no idea what a glorious plant it's going to be when it comes up out of the dirt. That's the metaphor uh, that that Paul uses there in in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, He says then, uh, jumping to verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of, of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, he says, there is also a spiritual body. So what, what we sow into the dirt are bodies broken by sin. Bodies born with deformities. Uh, bodies uh, with missing limbs. Bodies that for mysterious reasons don't work like they're supposed to. Bodies that, uh, that are riddled with cancer uh, or, or other diseases. Bodies that, that slowly over time self-destruct bodies that get old and tired and wrinkled. Uh, and, and we sow those bodies into the earth knowing that they're going to be raised. Uh, our cemeteries are gardens, or uh, maybe to use, better to use Paul's metaphor, are, our cemeteries are fields, fields that have been planted. Uh, and we plant with hope, uh, knowing that what will be raised is so much greater and better than what we sow. Uh, They will be raised then gloriously into a harvest that is going to leave us breathless. Surely uh, those who have suffered uh, the most from bodily infirmities here on this earth, uh, the blind, the, the lame, uh, the autistic, the, the mentally handicapped, those whose bodies are to them a constant affliction, uh, surely they uh, will rejoice more than any uh, and, and leap with the highest joy on the day of the final resurrection when they see the glory uh, of, of not only a, uh, a fixed body, but a glorified, perfected body. Well, that's the glorious future that we look forward to because of Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago. So there it is. He he rose. Why? Uh, Because uh, his resurrection is God's uh, testament to the world that this is my son. He rose so that he could put an end to the curse of death. He rose uh, so that he could give us new life already here and now. Uh, and he rose so that we may rest confident that we too shall one day rise. We look forward to that glorious harvest of which Christ is the firstfruits. Amen. Let's respond to the word of God by singing together from hymn 31.